Let's just pray as we begin to look at this passage. Father, we're grateful for your word. Uh, we know this is necessary for us. We know we need a revelation from you. We know you. We need you to speak to us about how to live in this world, how to have faith and trust in you, and how to operate as a church and as a body and as parts of that body. Well, we're so dependent on you this morning. I am dependent upon you this morning to make your word clear. We ask your spirit to move. We ask your spirit to bring understanding where we might lack it, uh, to bring conviction, to bring encouragement. Lord, we rely on you for all these things. Guide us according uh, to your great grace. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> A couple of things up front that we do need to, to get clear. As we look at this um, passage and we look at this series as we began last week, that I hope there's a sense in which you'll leave this a little bit dissatisfied, because I don't think it's entirely up to me or anybody standing at the pulpit to explain every single thing. We can't possibly explain every single thing in detail. On the other hand, uh, again, being upfront with this, because we can't cover everything, I really welcome a conversation. Uh, and a dialogue as well. And if there's questions you have or things you need clarification on, please, please come speak uh, to myself or one of the elders. Um, we love to have a conversation. And there may be time in a few weeks where we can actually do a bit of that uh, on stage even. Um, but we'll see how that works out. Um, but let's uh, look at this passage in particular that we have before us, and there's plenty there for us to look at. The main theme we want to think on this morning is that theme of the one body, as we've already been thinking of in communion time, um, but also how that body works together. Now, I'm um, not athletic by any means, and you can probably say, yep, we knew that. But I have been at certain points in my history, uh, really, I enjoy crickets. I say I enjoy it, don't do it that well, but I enjoy cricket. I've been part of a couple of different cricket clubs at different times. And being a member of a, a sporting team or a cricket club or anything like that, was a, was a, it's a financial commitment. So there's that side. There's a time commitment, um, not just a full Saturday afternoon, but also the, the training during the week. And for some grades, that was two nights of training a week I had to get to. Uh, then there was the extra commitment of players of my calibre, um, which meant fine leg to fine leg. If they're being merciful, you can do fine leg to mid-off or mid-on or something like that, if you understand those references. Specialist number 11 batsman, um, that, was, that was my role, which meant a lot of umpiring and scoring um, in between, waiting for other people to do what they needed to do. And bowling a couple of overs, maybe every few games or so. And that's, that was when I wasn't 12th man. Now, the, why, why would I do it if I'm not participating, if I'm not opening the batting, if I'm not opening the bowling, if I'm not in a prime fielding position? Why would I take part in something that I can't fully, um, I suppose, experience? I don't get all the joy of getting bowled first ball of the 
the innings because I'm never out there for the first pull of the innings. Uh, but why would why would I take part in something like that? Well, for me, I just I enjoyed the game. I enjoyed being part of something as well and part of the club. Uh, there was good people there, um, and it made you f made me feel like I was part of something a bit bigger than myself that I could contribute. That I knew what my role was, even if it was a small one. I knew what it was, and I just tried to do that to the best I could. Now, being part of something bigger than yourself is something I think we can understand. We do that, in a sense, in our, even in our, our workplaces. My one single role in my, in my workplace might be very small and insignificant, but we know it's part of the whole. Even in our connections and relationships in families, it feels like we're not having much impact in this one little place where we live or the limited time that we can have with some of our friends and family, but when we sit back and think we're part of the whole. You can contribute personally. You have um, something you can contribute that where the function of the whole body, the whole team, the whole uh, environment, uh, can, can benefit, and that brings joy in a certain sense in life. Now, we can see a bit of a crossover between teams and the church, maybe, in, in, that, in that everybody uh, sort of working together can create a, a faithful and fruitful environment. But there's a massive difference, though, in how the church is described in Scripture. Uh, and how it functions. Uh, it's not just a social club. It's not just a, a community where you can feel like you're part of something. Uh, it's, we don't just work together for the sake of our own end, that we would feel something. But for the church everywhere, but for the church here at Marion, even with the whole worldwide historical church, there's something in the sense of there's something bigger. We're not working for ourselves. We're working for the greater glory of God and the expansion of his kingdom. Being part of that, now that is something to really get involved with and get passionate about. And Paul tells us in this passage, in 1 Corinthians 12, the church is like a living body with many members, many body parts, as it were. Each making up the whole, each contributing and each is indispensable to the other. Sorry about this. And each part is also dependent on the spirit to provide the giftings needed for each of those people, for each of the people involved, to function as they should. And this passage teaches us a, an understanding, not just that there are spiritual, a spiritual gift for every member of the church, but how the spiritual life in the church is meant to function. What it's, what's the purpose of everyone having a spiritual gift? How does that work? And again, this is done with the foundation of Peter, what he laid last week. The focus is not even necessarily on the gifts. It's on what are they meant to accomplish? What are they meant to do? So this morning, we just want to consider the diversity and unity of the body what makes up the church, and how God intends uh, for those spiritual gifts that we have to be used uh, in this body today. A bit of context, of course, we've already spoken a bit about Corinth having some disorder and some disunity and clear 
division. And there was clearly some chaotic things happening in their public gatherings. As they came together to worship, uh, there was clearly some things not just going wrong, there was clearly some things being abused. There were some things not just not being done right, they were done the opposite way of which they were intended. And Paul has started addressing some of these issues that they have in their public gatherings uh, back in chapter 11. He sort of starts addressing some of these public gathering issues. And he turned at the start of chapter 12 to addressing a question they have, and it's concerning the spiritual things, concerning the spiritual people, even the spiritual, the spirituals that you wrote to me about. He has some things to inform them about. Some were clearly sort of, they were equating sort of a, a spirituality and worship that was, that was only exhibited with a practice of certain spectacular, the big gifts. And Paul says, you're not doing that well. You're not doing that in love, and you're not doing that according to the instruction uh, that God has given us. So in chapter 12, he, he insists the body is diverse, but it should be one, and there's a need for that. 13, as we'll look at next week, stresses that without love, all the gifts are worthless anyway. And then chapter 14, he narrows in on a couple of the gifts that have been particularly abused and used wrongly. These are the ones that are causing controversy and confusion, and he addresses that head on. Because he said, whatever the church is doing, it's meant to function in an orderly and biblical way. It has to be accessible to outsiders, while at the same time building up the believers, those who follow Jesus. It has to clearly present that God is present. That is the aim of the church gathering, that people would know that God is here, as he says at the end of chapter 14. That's a bit of the broader context. Chapter 12, we've seen so far, far as was already said, he's answering a question, he's, he's informing them of the things they need to know. And chapter 7 lays the ground for purpose of these gifts. It's for the common good, it's for every body in the church. And this is what the rest of the chapter goes on to explain. If it's for the common good, then how does that look? And again, we're not going to get a definitive or exhaustive um, understanding of what the gifts are. We will look at them at the end in a quick way. Um, and I may ask for permission partway through, depending on time, to take an excursus on a couple of things, but I'll judge on body language about whether I just keep going. But the first thing we want to think about is the diversity and unity of the body. We see this in sort of the larger section that we've had read for us, from sort of verse 12 through to verse 26 or so. Um, Paul starts talking about anatomy, literal physical anatomy. Now, I'm fairly confident with some of the things that Paul describes. I know where they are. I'm pretty good with the external things, the hands and the eyes and the the feet. Um, What creates some moments of complete ignorance for me is being married to a radiographer and when she starts talking shop with her co-workers, I get very lost. She starts talking about sacrums and linear aspiras and I'm like, oh. I didn't know my wife had the gift of tongues, but there was sort of a, there's words that start coming out, it's like I've got no connection to that even being part of 
the body. Thankfully, we don't need an anatomy lesson this morning to understand what Paul is saying here. We know the functions of the body. We know how the body roughly works, even if we don't know how it minutely works. We have doctors and medical staff in the room that can answer some of those questions. But the point he is making is that we are one body and we're meant to function together. There is one body and many members. He says it several times over. All of these things need to work together for the church to function as it should. That is the point he's making. He's addressing two different groups here as well. There's some we see from verse sort of uh, 15 to 17, if you look at those verses, there's a group that feel inferior. There's a group that feel inferior. And there's, from verse 21 onwards to 24, there's a group that think a bit too highly of themselves. They're superior. They're elite. That's how they view themselves. You think of that first group Firstly, it's a common thing sometimes to feel inadequate. Uh, it's a common thing to feel like I'm, I'm not that person, so therefore I'm not as good, or I'm not as, uh, I can't contribute as much as that person. That's a common thing that we often think of. You know, I'm not a hand, therefore, you know, I don't belong to the body. I'm not an eye, so I don't belong to the body. We'd say that's a ludicrous thing to say. If the hand and the eye were literally talking, say, no, you can't say that. You are literally part of the body. But this feeling of inadequacy that we sometimes have, um, where things don't come naturally to you as they do to others, so therefore I'm less than them. But as Paul says, there's no individual in the church is less based on a perceived importance of function. Uh, just as um, you know, these the hands and the eye could say this in a hypothetical situation, it's like, not only does that not make any sense, it's just not true. It doesn't make you any less part of the body, he says. Similarly, on the other end, now, those who consider themselves elite or superior, I'm, I have no need of you, is what they say. I have no need of you. Those who say that, or those who think that way, that because you know, we get to do ministry at the front, or if I was to say, because I do ministry at the front, I have no need of, that would be a horrible thing for me to even think alone for anyone on stage to say or act on. There's no sense of, there's a sense of looking down and saying, I cut off that bit, I cut off that bit. The body doesn't work like that and neither should the church. Paul's point in all of this is that every Christian has something to contribute. Every Christian has a gift and no one Christian has all of them. Everyone has a gift, and no one person has all of them. Anyone who says they have all of them is more likely to be a cult leader. And that is literally the case. If you know of Jim Jones uh, in America, he literally said, I have all the spiritual gifts. That's someone you can run away from. Everybody has something to contribute. Now, I know nothing of soccer. I know it's a hot topic at the moment. 
I still don't know nothing about soccer, even after watching some of the game last night. But in the last uh, few weeks, as um, I've been helping out around the interchange bench for the under-7s game, uh, there's some players that come off to have a rest, and we're trying to rotate through and keep it fair so everybody's contributing and participating. Some players come off, and very quickly they're, I need to get back on. We can't score any goals without me. The hard thing is it's actually true, usually. <laughs> but there's also a sense in which I usually, usually in those moments, I try and have a little chat. It's like, you, you realise you need the team. Not so much the team. The team might need you, but you actually need the team. You can't play all those people on your own, can you? Oh, I need to get on. No one player can win a team game in just complete solidarity, running around on their own. Commentator put it this way. If you were all eye or all hand, you would not be a body. You'd be a freak show. In the same way, if everyone was a teacher or a miracle worker or everyone spoke in tongues and no one was prophesying, helping, interpreting or discerning, you wouldn't have a church, you'd have a madhouse. Bodies and churches only thrive when the full range of the members is recognised released and celebrated. Interdependence is built in and God has designed it that way. The body is necessarily diverse. And the purpose of us working together is so that all these different and diverse functions can come together for the common good. So there be no division, as Paul says in verse 25. God has done this so there would be no division in the body. Verses 25 and 26, I think, is give us a great purpose to aim for, a, a challenge to return to. This is what we should return to when we're feeling inadequate or when we're feeling superior. Here's what we return to to ground us in truth. There should be no division. No one should say they're less than, no one should say they're better than, but that the members may have the same care for one another. Unity in this diversity, being united even though there's differences in diversity and gifts, means loving and caring for one another equally. That's how it should look. That's how it should work out, that there be common good that there would be no divisions, there would be unity. And these things are essential to a proper care of one another. As many times we may have felt uncared for in the church, unseen or unheard. And that usually happens because there's a disconnect. There's a disconnect from others and, and what they're going through there's a disconnect from them personally, relationally. And there's a disconnect sometimes in the church in general. There's a disconnect from looking at and God has composed and arranged the body to function in this way, but how is it actually functioning? There's a disconnect sometimes. And disunity leads to lack of care, leads to lack of direction and pastoral, I suppose, support and good leadership. 
And in the church, as we look to, um, again, this sense of sometimes layering it, when we look to certain parts of the body and we put all the emphasis on one part of the body, there's a certain part of the body that's doing all the work. So we let that part of the body do all the work. The church, that kind of body is not going to be a healthy body. It's not going to have a healthy future. There'll be, there'll be burnout. There'll be lack of connectivity through the rest of the body. It won't be working as it should. All the attention is on one thing. We won't know when someone's suffering because we're focusing over here. We won't know when someone's rejoicing because we're too busy over here. And on the other hand, when we look the other way, when we're feeling a bit more elitist and we're not valuing every member as we should, that's just as dangerous because we might start to categorise in the sense of here's where people can contribute. We have a set list of things where people can contribute in, and if you don't fit in that list, then I suppose you have nothing to contribute. That is also uncaring and unhealthy for the body. We need to be thoughtful about the ways we care for one another, but also the ways we, we seek a con contribution from everyone. To be considerate of others means getting to know them. What are their giftings? What can they do? What do they desire to do? What is the Spirit leading them to do? Not just allocating someone constantly to that 12th man role. You're the sub that comes off the bench if the elite players get injured. That's not how the body works. And I think we need to be a bit more intentional and thoughtful about that. And that's a challenge. Because there needs to be great wisdom and discernment in that. It's a job for the, for the elders of the church to discern those kinds of things. But also, it doesn't just lie with the leadership. If you are part of this church and you see a need, fill the need. There's all kinds of things where the church, to function as it should, needs all kinds of people. But God values diversity as well. It's an important, very important lesson here. God doesn't make, um, God doesn't make ice cubes. We're in the business of making ice cubes. If we want something cold, it's a uniform shape, we make them all the same, we pop them in our drink. God's in the business of sort of more of a bit more creative than that. It's sort of some picture as we make ice cubes, God makes snowflakes. To try and establish unity through sameness is not just boring, but it's also against God's design for how the body is meant to work. Unity doesn't come through everyone doing the same thing or um, everybody having the same gifts. It comes through everybody having different gifts and being released into them. Dear Carson puts it like this, God establishes his brand of diversity by a lavish grant of highly diverse gifts, each one contributing to the body as a whole. 
change gears now to think about the rest of this section here in chapter 12 from verse 27 onwards. And thinking about how the gifts are arranged, composed and appointed by God. Now choose those words, arranged, composed and appointed because they're in our text. If you look at verse, back at verse uh, 18, as it is, God has arranged the members of the body, each one of them as he chose. Verse 24, but God has so composed the body. And down verse 28, and God has appointed it in the church. God arranged, he chose, he composed, he appointed the body to work in a certain way, with a certain measure of the equality of gifts being used. Also of a certain structure that there is a structure, there is first this, there is second this, and there's third this, and the giftings follow after, under those uh, things that God has designed it to be, those roles that God has designed. And there's no hint, there's no hint here in this text as we look at this list, or the list that we, we can look again at in a minute, of earlier in the chapter from verse 7 to 11. There's no hint that in these lists or in this teaching or in this scripture anywhere that these spiritual gifts were meant by God just to be linked to a certain historical moment. There's no hint of that here. Now I know that creates a bit of, okay, where do we go with that? Hopefully we have time to unpack it. And I'd like your permission to go a bit over time this morning because I think it's important that we just stop and think of that. There's debate, and I don't want to get into debates because I don't think that's always a healthy thing to do. But as a church, it's good and healthy to discuss these things at times. There's sort of two sides. There's more than that, but for sake of simplicity... There's sort of two sides. There's a debate about whether these gifts have all or partially stopped, that they've ceased. This is sort of the cessationalist end. Or that they in some form continue into present day. That is continuationalist. Now, as a church here and as eldership have discussed this in some ways as we've prepared for this series, we're theologically and biblically convinced that God doesn't change. We're convinced of that, and I think we can all agree that God doesn't change. Does God change in how he reveals himself at certain points in history? Yes, of course. But we're also convinced that God is God, and he can continue to, can, can continue to show his power through his spirit as he sees best to accomplish his sovereign plan, his eternal plan, and that that would be carried out in the lives of his people, his church, and the world, that God will continue to act however he sees sovereignly best to accomplish his sovereign plan, and that includes freeing his spirit to move in his church as he so desires. That's what we are convinced of from scripture. In practice, in practice as a church, I'm not reticent to say we're cautious. We're cautious. 
and I speak for myself personally maybe, but maybe the elders will, would even go as far as to say we're sceptical. In the sense of some of these spiritual gifts have been practiced in recent history and through the church um, in the wrong way. In the wrong way. They've been abused. Now, so we, we look at it and say we're not cautious and sceptical because we want to limit God. God is not bound by our limitations. But we want to limit the influence of the abuse and misuse of these spiritual gifts. Just as at Corinth. There's many in the church today who misuse and abuse these gifts. And the solution to the abuse and misuse of anything in Scripture is not chucking it out. But it's to look at what Scripture tells us to do with them. And that's what Paul's direction to the church at Corinth is. They were abusing and misusing the spiritual gifts. He doesn't say stop using them, stop seeking them. He says, no, this is how they're supposed to operate. Within these boundaries, with this structure, with this leadership. Now, it's, it's much easier to prohibit something or to legislate against something. Um, just those things we're uncertain or cautious of. But the biblical model, and the biblical teaching on these things is not to prohibit, I don't believe, but to regulate. These operate as God designs them in his structure, in his way, and the way he says the church operates. Not in, however, someone might have seen them practice, how they might have experienced it, how many churches and even denominations have built a whole denomination and, and movement around some of these things. What does God say about them? They are regulated. Their boundaries about how they're used, how they should be used. There's instructions for how these things operate, how the body operates. And there's boundaries about who gets to decide how they're implemented and how they're practiced in the local church. And that's from leadership and eldership. Leadership and eldership are accounted, accountable for those things. The overarching thing is that God has appointed, God has chosen, God has arranged, God has um, composed the body in this way. The focus is on what God has done, what God can do. Now, there's a sense in which we could we can move and start looking at the gifts individually, which I think would be helpful in some ways, just so we know where we're at. But defining the gifts isn't actually Paul's point here. Um, defining them too specifically or too narrowly, if Paul doesn't do it, we probably shouldn't spend a lot of time on doing that either. But we also can't be too loose with their implementation and practice because clearly they can be abused. Clearly can, they can be misused to great damage and harm in the church. So we, we have what we have in these, this list, the two lists we have in this chapter, other lists in the Bible. We look at it and it's, while there might not be enough detail to make some of us um, sure enough to be definitive on some issues, there's enough for us to be very sure about how they're to be implemented. How to respond uh, when, when certain things are expressed. 
or manifested. I suppose my, my main heart here is not to give definitive or exhaustive lists on spiritual gifts, not to have a definitive answer on cessationalism or continuationism or anything like that or dispensationalism or anything in those regards. All those words probably mean nothing to some of us and that's a good thing. I don't want us to be known as a church of this ism or that ism or this ist or that ist. Let's just be biblical. What does the scripture tell us and what does it mean for us here where we are? With that in mind, let's look at some of these things. What are some things we notice about these gifts that God has appointed, God has composed in the body and arranged? There's clearly a variety of gifts. We know that right from the start, even verse 4 and 6. There's a variety of gifts. They all come from the same source. There's varieties of service. There's a variety of activities. There's a variety of gifts. It's not just indicated in the fact that there is a list that indicates variety as a list, but there's multiple lists as well. There's two lists here, some of which mention different things. There's lists elsewhere in Scripture that also list some different things. So there's a variety of gifts. The variety is also indicated by there's a different order to some of those lists. Paul didn't even bother to put some of these things in the same order. There's different orders to the list. He seems to have, especially in verse, um, uh, verse 28, those first three are very diff- distinct person gifts. There's apostles, uh, apostles, prophets, and teachers. That seems to be the distinction, first, second, third. But other than that, he doesn't bother putting anything in the same order. Those even appear in different orders and different lists. So we can't get too caught up in what in that, I think there's, there's good opportunity for to discuss that further, but not in this setting. And some of these gifts, as we look at them, some of them, just sort of, as we step back a bit, just zoom out, some of them are distinctly natural. They just seem like that's just something people do. They help one another. They administer or they guide or they direct leadership. That gifts of administration is, is more of a, that's a directional thing. It's like a helmsman on a boat, a pilot on a boat. So there's clearly some things that people are naturally inclined towards that God uses and the Spirit empowers to even uh, greater functionality and efficiency. Others are clearly supernatural. There's clearly God intervening into human action and human history and interacting, using Spirit-filled people who follow Jesus as instruments to do what is miraculous and supernatural. Healings, miracles. There's another category there that's hard, a bit harder to find. It's a bit of a blend, a bit of a natural and supernatural. And I think that's um, harder to define, but these are still listed as, as gifts. So those who give words of knowledge or words of wisdom or prophecy those who can discern spirits and interpret tongues. Now, while we sit here and in some ways try and categorise these and define them, we need to remember that wasn't the main point. But wasn't bothered to keep them in the same order, as we said, or give us all the details of what these mean in all times, in all places, in all occasions. 
We just know how they're supposed to function in the church and how it's supposed to be regulated in the church. The main thing I probably want you to notice is if we have time, we'll start looking at them. I might run down the clock. Is the way some of these are paired as well. They're sort of not done in isolation. That's the whole point of how the body operates and how the gifts operate. They're not done in isolation. So as you look at back at maybe verse, <coughs> back to the start of the chapter, uh, you think about utterance of wisdom, utterance of knowledge. Those are, you'd think, would be paired with the discerning that comes a bit later. Think of faith and the gift of faith. That would, that's the faith you would think is necessary to believe that God can heal, the gift of healing. And you think of tongues, well, obviously as paired with that is the interpretation of tongues. There's a pairing and a working together that goes on in this diversity. That God has ordered these things. When they're done in solidarity or on their own, sometimes it's wonderful, but the best way it works is in a body where they're all working together. Again, permission to keep going? All right. Let's briefly look at a few of these. We're not going to get into a lot of detail about some of them. Think of the utterances of wisdom and knowledge in verse 8, earlier in the chapter. This isn't specifically preaching. It's not just preaching. It could be preaching. It's not just prophecy. That's a separate category as well. What this most likely is, the utterances of wisdom, the utterance of knowledge, is this God-given ability to read a situation, to read a context and speak wisely and knowledgeably into it. I'm not going to give examples or illustrations of, of these as we go. I'm just going to try and define them briefly. And again, that's where dialogue can open up later. Faith. This is not saving faith. This is distinct and separate from that. This is a special measure of faith, I believe, that's given uh, that, that God can and will perform healings or miracles in certain contexts. It's directly linked to that, I think. It's also given in the context of where possibly God has designed in his sovereign plan and purposes, there wouldn't be a healing or a miracle in that situation. There's a gift of faith to endure, seeking that God's, we see that God has a deeper purpose. God gifts that gift through the Spirit, I believe, to both of those purposes. Gifts of healings. I want you to really note this one, the gifts of healing. There's plural in all instances. This gift is mentioned just in this chapter. Verse 9, verse 29, verse 30. It's all plural gifts of healing. I'm emphasizing that just because I want to make a point. I think this, this means that it shows that no one person has the gift of healing. Uh, it's a singular, no singular person with a gift of healing to perform healings. I don't believe that's what is on display here. God gives gifts of healing by his spirit, not the gift of healings. Um, anyone claiming to have this gift that they can heal people themselves 
uh, I don't believe is practicing what the scripture outlines here. Again, not a hard definitive rule. We can discuss further. There's context where God blesses certain people, but overall, with a plurality that's there, we need to look at why that is a plural thing. Workings of miracles, workings of, of powers. Healings are miraculous, they're powerful, but not all miracles are related to healings. There's other things that God deems to work at certain points where he interacts, he comes in, and he does that through uh, his spirit. Prophecy, again, this is a big one. We will unpack this more in chapter 14. Um, but we understand this to be the speaking forth of God's word as God has revealed. In the Old Testament, prophets both predicted the future by revelation from God, and they also spoke about what God had already said. They enforced what God had said. They were covenant enforcers. Uh, Whatever, again, we'll look at it more in a couple of weeks, but whatever we would define prophecy as, it must contain the word of God. Um, in some form or another, in the sense of it has to come to fruition, it has to be true. But also in this gift that God has given to some of his people, and I believe I've experienced this in certain settings and from certain individuals, is that it's, it's not meant to be on the same level as scripture. We need to be careful with that. This is not an extra, when someone says they have a word of prophecy, We'll see in a minute about what the pairing is with that, but also it's not an extra book we add in here. It's not not to be treated that way. It's being exercised by people who are not perfect. They'll get it wrong. That's the necessity of the next gift, the discerning of the spirits. All of these gifts are open to abuses and misuse and misinterpretation. I think that's why there's the pairing is necessary, but this next gift is distinguishing between spirits. Uh, now we think of, think of this is, this is probably on, on multiple fronts. Um, ability to discern and weigh whether what is being said is of God. I think that's a very, very important thing. That if someone is truly speaking a word of God or if it's a false word, I think that's a distinguishing and discerning that needs to happen. Also, it's um, recognizing how evil spirits might operate in this world. Knowing the culture that's around us. Discerning that's not a wise thing to be entering into. That's an evil thing over there. That's something to be avoided. Discerning that and warning people of it. And this is done in the context of the body, remember. This is not done by solitary people, separate from uh, the body. This is not done by people who have removed themselves from accountability of leadership or eldership. It's a very important thing to consider, and this gift in particular, I think, in all of them, but this one in particular. There's a very healthy wariness I have of anyone offering discernment counsel who's not part of the body and is not under the submission of the the elders of the local church. Various kinds of tongues. You may or may not have been waiting for that one. Now this is, this can certainly be other known human languages. It certainly can. 
be that, such as in Acts 2 in Pentecost. Although I think we will see in chapter 13 and 14, it's not limited to that. There's, there's a lot of room for discussion and debate about that. And I don't want to enter into it entirely. Either way, this gift of tongues, could, if, whether it's a known human language that another person hears the gospel through, or hears a revelation from God through, or whether it's an expression of personal and private worship, or even a revelation from God to the church when it's paired with interpretation. This is clearly done in pairing. It's never done as a separate thing. And also, I want to be really clear, it's not a second blessing. It's not something you get at another time. Not, you get saved by putting your faith in Jesus. At another point, you get the Spirit and you can perform this act. Um, this is a gift meant to be used for the building up of the church, as we'll see in chapter 14, not to cause division, not to cause confusion. And this, of all the gifts, is probably the one that has the most contention around it. But the categorical answer as to whether all believers should speak in tongues is answered for us in this passage. And just in case you miss the rhetorical answers, sorry, the actual answers to the rhetorical questions at the end of those verses as Diane read for us, are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers, do all work miracles, do all possess gifts of healings, do all speak the tongues, do all interpret. The rhetorical and the implied answer and direct answer is no. No. Not all do this. Just want to make that really clear. Interpretation of tongues, again, sort of speaks for itself. Any speaking of tongues, done especially in a, a public gathering, must be accompanied by the gift of interpretation, or that speaker must be silent. We'll see that in chapter 14. This can't be ignored. It's a clear command of Scripture. Um, I think that's enough. Yeah. So what do we eagerly desire? Paul gives us this instruction to earnestly desire the higher gifts, and he's going to show us a more excellent way this way of love. There are things we should earnestly desire and seek after as a church, I believe. And I believe those things, whatever you think of the gifts, the things we should be desiring and seeking after is unity. Unity for the body, that we will be one. That God would be seen to be in our presence, that's something we should desire. And we eagerly seek whatever will accomplish that. We seek what brings unity. We seek what makes the presence of God manifest as we gather. We seek what will best glorify God. We seek whatever it takes to make that happen. That's what we pray for. That's what we're to ask for. I think there's a, ba a big challenge for many of us here this morning, myself included, as we've looked at this and have been preparing for this, I don't feel in any way equipped to give you all of what you might need to know or even want to know about these topics. But the challenge is, I think, for us as a church, as we seek to desire what God desires, is how much of what we know from the Spirit and how He operates just comes from our tribe, from our experience. I think we, 
my, I, I as a person, as an individual before God, I need to be more open to how the Spirit might operate. More open to the Spirit's power and guidance in, in my life. And on the other side, there might be those of us like, oh, let's release it. Let's, let's embrace all these things and welcome the chaos. No. We need to be growing an understanding of how the Spirit works and operates and how the body operates. We need to be growing an understanding of how the Spirit does not operate as well. There's clearly things here that teach us. Um, we get it wrong. We get it wrong. That's why we're given instructions. As I said earlier, our desire to follow these things and look at these things um, has to come from Scripture. It has to be biblically driven with wisdom, with great humility. Even if we disagree on whether gifts continue today or not, uh, or even if we disagree on whether they should be policed as stringently as sometimes they are, what we can agree on is what Paul instructed the Corinthians in. That we can't do some and not the others. The giver of the gifts has designed this body to be in unity to be diverse, to be wholly committed to love of him and love of others. Uh, Sam Storms put it this way, that you are equipped by God to manifest the presence of his spirit so that others can become more like Jesus. And that is something that I want us as a church to be aiming for. We want a model where there's every member ministry, every part working together, that means we don't dismiss our own gift. We don't dismiss the gift of others. And as a church, we don't settle. We don't settle for where we're at. We want more of God. We want him to be made clear in our presence. Let's pray. Father, there's so much that remains unsaid, unpacked, or so many questions that might still be unanswered from this, but Lord, may our hearts be united in this one fact. We want to make your glory known here at City Reach Marion. We want to be found as uh, people who are submissive and willing uh, to be led of your spirit and filled with your spirit. Lord, forgive us for where we do get that wrong, where we, uh, even myself this morning, where I may have been clumsy, where things aren't explained clearly and where things aren't practiced maybe as well as they should. Forgive us for that. Lord, help us to have a goal for the common good that we will be united in the fact that you are a great God and you provide great things and wonderful things for us. And we want to make that known. Help us in that aim and thank you most of all for the message that we have to share of Jesus. And it's in his precious name we thank and praise you. Amen.